You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. If you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. We are starting, officially starting today, a series in 1 Peter. We'll be in this book probably until the end of the year or around Advent or in December. Um, uh, of this year. So we'll be, we'll be starting the series called Foreigners and Exiles. And I'll explain a little bit what that means today. I'll explain a little bit why we're calling it that. Um, so if you have a Bible, if you do not have a Bible and you'd like one, you can raise your hand. We can get one in your hands. Um, and it's free. You can keep it and read it um, all day and all night if you want. First um, Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read a couple of verses, the first two actually, and then I'm going to pray. And we're going to get into today's uh, sermon. Let me read First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the providence of, providences of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Let's pray. This morning, Lord, I, uh, even as we, we started this morning by saying uh, this is a sacrifice, we want to give you a sacrifice of praise. Um, I, I want to give you a, a, like a sacrifice of sermon right now, just as, a, as an act of worship to you, as an act of even a sacrifice, because... Um, the difficulty sometimes of even standing in front of people and preaching a sermon is, is, doesn't come easy, Lord. And so, it's, Lord, I pray that you would accept the sacrifice of sermon, if that even makes sense, Lord. And, um, and I ask, God, that you would give us uh, a mind to want to, uh, to follow you, God, and a heart to want to follow you, that your kingdom would, be, would come to San Francisco and it would come through your church, Lord, this church, the other churches in San Francisco that are living out the Christian life together for the glory of God. My heart is so full of things that I want to say to this church. And I ask God that, that you would shape us, you would mature us, that you would grow us um, into what you desire for your church to be in this city. And so God, I pray that you would anoint me and use me, Lord. I ask God that the power of God would be displayed through changed lives today, through lives, of, uh, 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 lives that are converted, lives that turn to you, God, lives that turn from uh, uh, waywardness, lives that want to be completely committed to your, to, to, to following you, Jesus. And so I pray that lives change would be, would, would just show the power of God here this morning. So um, God, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Uh, the most used uh, application that I have on my phone, no matter where I go, uh, whether if I'm in a city or if I am out of the city traveling or out of the country, the most used application on my phone is my map app. And I, won't, I, I, won't, I don't want to talk about whatever map you use. That's not a thing here. I'm not even going to talk about that. Like, I work on this app. I, that's not, I'm not, we're not doing that right now. But the, this map app was like a complete game changer, that you can have a map on your phone. Uh, and, and I remember when my vacationing with my, my parents, my dad, my dad used to use like real paper maps, and he would have them all in the glove compartment, and, they, and you'd open the glove compartment, and they would shoot out, and there were just tons of them. And they're all over the world, maps, and he didn't even go there, but he just had them for everything. And we'd pull over to the side of the road, and he'd get the map out. We'd have to pull over 
to see where we were going. You pull over and he'd lay the map out on the hood of the car and like, hey, Dave, see this? We're here and we got to get there. And I don't understand this stuff at all. And then that progressed, and we got like this thing called the internet, and that happened, and then MapQuest, and you printed out maps, and you get the turn-by-turn directions, and you'd be driving, like, what does it say next? Like, in 4.2 miles, like, I have to count your odometer and see how far you go, and then you turn right. That sort of thing happens. And, but the, this new thing that you have on your phone, it's, it's, it's there. It's on your phone. Before this happened, you were lost. Before this happened, I don't even know how people got around before this happened, my wife and I used to travel to L.A. We, used to, we grew up in Bakersfield, and this story I'm about to share will probably show you that we grew up in Bakersfield. Um, grew up in Bakersfield, my wife and I, and uh, we'd go to L.A. a lot just to go and uh, visit and eat food, and we went there, and this was before, like, maps on phones, before phone, maybe pager days. I don't even remember. It was a long time ago. And we got lost, and we, were, we pulled over. It was off the 5. It wasn't even the 405. It was the 5. Pulled over to this very seedy neighborhood, a very seedy gas station where I pulled up to the gas attendant, and it was like, like those metal tray. Like I'd like a, a Snickers, and they, they slide it through a metal tray, and you give them your money. It's like prison, you know? And so I, 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 we stopped, and I'm like, hi, I'm, I'm lost. I'm looking for directions. She's like, where do you want to go? I'm like, I'm looking for the Cheesecake Factory. Do you know... Where are the cheese? And they're like, what? Like the, the Cheesecake Factory? And they're like, is that like a, is there a factory around here that they make cheesecake? I'm like, no, no, it's a, it's a restaurant. And, they're like, and we're like, we start talking about it. Like it serves burgers and then there's cheesecake, but they have pasta too. And their menu's long. And he's like, oh, really? No, I have no idea where that, where that is. And we're thinking everyone in LA knows Disneyland and Cheesecake Factory. Like that's where. And so we just pulled over and we asked for directions. And the guy could not help us. The most important part of maps, the most important part of using a map is knowing where you're at, locating yourself on a map. Because before you know where you're going, you have to know where you are. And so even if you go into a, a, a mall or you even use a physical map, they usually say, you are here. And there's like a dot that goes, you're here. And you have to know where you're at so you know where you're going. This, every map has this. And now our phones drop this amazing pulsating dot to let us know where we're at, unless it doesn't. Um, unless you're, you grab your map and you're like, it won't find me. And you do this thing with your phone in the air. This won't, my wife does this all the time. Every single time she opens up her map app, she's like, it won't find me. Hello, I want, and she just gets angry and I have to go like, Louis C.K. and her like, let it get to space, let it get to space, come down. She's like, it, it's had time to get to space. Maps orient us, even now, they use, we, we use it to even like calibrate and know the right direction where we're going, where we're pointing. They orient us even further today. Mapping, locating, where we're at so we know where we're going is how Peter opens this letter. He opens it with a map. And he maps us. He shows us where we're at. He shows the readers where they're at and where they're going. And he maps us in three ways. He maps the first readers in three ways. He maps them geographically. He shows them where they're at that they're scattered. We'll talk about that in a second. He maps them socially, who they are before society. So he maps them, this is who you are, and he calls them exiles or foreigners. You're scattered all over the world, and he maps them out socially. Then he also maps them out, and this is the most important thing. If you get nothing from today, please get this, because this will frame everything in our entire, for the rest of our series. He maps them theologically, who they are before God. We must know where we are at before we know where we are going. 
And so he maps them. He says, you are this. You're scattered, but you're also foreigners and you're exiles. But you have to know this is who you are before God, that you are chosen. You are sanctified by the Spirit of God. You're sprinkled with the blood of Christ. You're chosen to follow Christ and obey him. That's who you are. Know who you are. And so he maps them. He locates them so they have this sense of direction. This is who we are. We're exiles. We're scattered. Some of them, the first readers of this book, and consequently many readers after this book, they're persecuted. They were a persecuted minority, minority, and, and so Peter says, this is who you are. What Peter will do, he'll draw everything around theologically. We have to know who we are. We have to know who we are before God. And what happens, and what Peter will do for the rest of this book is, when we know who we are before God, this will then inform who we are socially. When we know who we are before God, theologically, this will inform, this will change, this will transform who we are in society. Because this is the biggest question, and this is a question that will take us a long time to answer, maybe even a lifetime to answer. How do Christians participate in society? How do followers of Jesus, maybe you're here this morning and you've come to church after taking a very long break from church and everything that has to do with church, you're like, I hate the way Christians are in society. And you should be asking yourselves, how do Christians engage with society? How do you as, follow Jesus, be obedient to God and God's word, and then live in society? And live in a society being in Western United States, being in very progressive San Francisco, how do you live in society like San Francisco? How do you do it? A lot, a lot of people have a lot of thoughts, and we hope through our our series, especially today, is to locate us on that map. What, how do, where do we live? How do we live? And where are we going? What I love about this is that Peter doesn't spend too much time talking about who he is. Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he just moves on. Doesn't explain who he is. We did that last week with a little series or a little sermon on Peter. But he doesn't, he, his point is to get to the point. He doesn't land. He goes, Peter, and I hung out with Jesus, and I spent some time with him, and we did this, and I denied him. Then he brought me back, and I had a boat, and I wasn't a good fisherman. He didn't do any of that stuff. <laughs> He's like, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, let me get to the point. I want to impress on you your true identity. I want to impress on you who you are. I want to impress on you who you are before God. And here's what the, one of the best one-sentence summaries or theses of 1 Peter. Committed to memory because this will inform us as we go throughout our entire series. A guy named Scott McKnight writes this in his book on 1 Peter. He writes, Peter intends his readers to understand who they are before God so that they can be who they are in society. That is so good. Just, let's just dwell on the simplicity of that statement. That's the whole book. That's the whole book of 1 Peter. We need to know who we are before God so we can be who we are supposed to be, who we are before and in society. We have to know our identity in God, our identity in Christ as followers of Jesus in San Francisco, so then that informs us on how to be who we are in San Francisco. This is so vitally important. That's why I'm so excited. I've been excited for a while to go through this book with you. Before we know where we're going in life, before we know where we're going in society, and eternity even, you have to know who you are. So, let's go back to the location slide. Geographically, socially, theologically. I want to walk us through those three things this morning. I want to start with their geographical location, their geographical and social location, before I explain the theological location. And the reason why I want to do that is because 
they are geographically exiled, it says. They're socially foreigners. And the reason why they are exiled and the reason why they are foreigners is because of who they are before God. Who you are before God in some ways will make you an exile. Who you are before God will in some way make you a foreigner. Who we are before Christ as followers of Jesus will make us in some way foreigners in San Francisco. Though we live here, we are foreigners. And though we live here, we are exiles. There's some sense of that that happens because of who we are before God. So let's start, first of all, geographically. It says this. Peter says that they are scattered or exiles. Let me show you a map of Asia Minor during the first century. The map of Asia Minor. Here's the first century map of Asia Minor. Most commentaries believe that Peter was writing from Rome, writing to followers of Jesus who have been scattered, who are now strangers in the world of of the diaspora. That's kind of another translation, another way of reading that verse. That red dot is where Peter is writing to. There was exiles, there were Christians that were scattered all over this area. They were followers of Jesus that were pushed out. They were marginalized, scattered all over Asia Minor. Now the question is, why were they pushed out? What happened in their life that made them pushed out all over Asia Minor? What happened? Now, some theologians and some historians believe that it was actually a group of people that were already marginalized. So there were people that were all over that area that were already marginalized. They were marginalized in society. People of lower class, they already felt excluded from society at large. But what happened was when the gospel spread to those areas, and there's still debate on how it spread to those areas, when the gospel spread to those areas, these people who were already marginalized in society found a new home in the church. So they were put, there were people that were marginalized, that were pushed on the outskirts of society. They were lower class people. There were people that the society didn't even care about. And then when the gospel spread through there, the gospel came and embraced the other. The gospel came and embraced the lower class. The gospel came and embraced those that, were, that had poor social standing. The gospel came and embraced those that society would not hug. The gospel came and hugged them. That's, that's what a lot of people believe. And so when Peter's writing this, he's writing to people who have already been excluded, but then there's this new depth to their exclusion because not only were they lower class citizens, now they were Christian lower class citizens, which actually lowered the bar a little bit more. And so Peter's writing to them to encourage them. Peter's writing to them to show that you are now in the family of God. And becoming followers of Jesus pushed them even further. And Peter says, that's okay. This is how you live now. Some other, so that's one view. I'm going to give you three views. The second view that people think that these people that were scattered or a part of the, the, the exiles here in Asia Minor, some others think that that because of the concentrate, a concentrated persecution that was happening in Rome, where supposedly Peter was writing, under, under Nero, uh, there was a concentrated ex, uh, persecution and execution of Christians. Because of that, it pushed Christians out, and it pushed people out sojourning all over Asia Minor, kind of like we're seeing right now in Syria with Christians and other groups being pushed from their homes. They believed that what was going on in Rome. And it pushed all these now young Christians who are now persecuted all over Asia Minor. And so Peter from Rome is writing to them, you guys that were pushed out, scattered everywhere. And when they were scattered, the gospel went and scattered as well. That's another view of who Peter's writing to. Still other people think the third view 
is that they were Christians in these areas, and that due to their conversion to Christ, they were actually just Christians there, and then when the gospel spread through this place, and there were different people from different social classes, when the gospel spread and when they converted to Christianity, they were pushed out socially. It was just normal people who lived in Asia Minor, the gospel spread there, they became Christians, and because they became Christians, there was a persecution. They were pushed out of society to the margins, and Peter uses their social marginalization to teach them the Old Testament concept of being a sojourner, of that they join the people of God who have always been passing through this earth to their true home in heaven. Those are the three views, the three predominant views of who he's writing to. Now, here's the truth. Though I think all three, view, all three of those views are healthy and good and can be right, no one knows exactly who Peter is writing to. But we do know this. This is what the text explicitly says. This is what's explicit in the text, that these followers of Jesus became alienated from their social environment in a new way. Either they were already or they weren't before or something, but they were marginalized and excluded from their environment in a new way when they became Christians. Something happened when they became followers of Jesus. They were pushed out of society in a whole new way. Before conversion, these people were very much like their neighbors. Before conversion, they looked like their neighbors. They talked like their neighbors. They acted like their neighbors. They had the same priorities and values as their neighbors. But then they became different when they became Christians. And this was the cause. Their difference, now that they have a new allegiance in Christ, and this difference caused their marginalization and persecution. Now, I think if you read in chapter 4, this is the most clarifying passage to explain what was going on in 1 Peter. Look at 1 Peter 4, 3 and 4. This is, I think, I think, in my opinion, this is the most clarifying passage of who Peter's writing to. He says this, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. He's writing to these Christians, these followers of Jesus, and he's saying, listen, you guys spent enough time living the way that, that, that pagans live, that do not believe and trust in Christ. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. That wasn't just bowing down to idols. That's raising up anything that, that, that was a false god, whether it be money or success or pride. They were idols. And Peter writes and says, you spent so much time in the past doing these things Living this way, he says, they, society, friends, family, this is so important, they, once you became Christians, the society, are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Okay, so just stop here. Let me clarify some stuff. These are, are, are followers of Jesus, and, Paul, and Peter's writing saying, okay, so you guys used to spend time doing everything, everything that pagans used to do. The orgies and the lust and the pride and, and driven for success and consumerism, driven by all of those things. You used to do that. But now you don't. And because you don't, they look at you and when, they, when, when you're not going to the orgies and not getting drunk like they do anymore, they look at you and like, what is wrong with you? I don't even know who you are anymore. We used to party all night long until all the bars closed around three or whenever they close around here. We used to do that all the time. And you won't do that with me anymore? What's wrong with you? 
You're like, hey, I got to call it. Like, I'm going to wake up in the morning, and I need to seek God and seek God's vision for my life, and I want to actually live a life that's worthy of being saved because I've been saved by Christ. And they're like, well, you're, you're absolute, you've gone insane. I don't know, I don't, I don't even know. Any, and so because of that, they're heaping abuse on you. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean like you're not advancing in your career anymore because you're not doing what everyone else is doing? Could mean that. It could mean like they don't invite you anymore and the friendship circles aren't there anymore. It could mean that. Could it mean serious physical persecution? It could mean that. It did mean that there, and it could mean that here, today. Whatever reason they were scattered all over Asia Minor, we know this. We know that they are now different because they have come to follow and come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Coming under the lordship of Christ gives you a new identity. And not just a new identity. This is important especially if you're here trying to learn about the Christian faith. Coming under the lordship and the salvation of Jesus Christ not only gives you a new identity where the old is gone and the new has come, it gives you a whole new set of priorities. A whole new set of priorities. Your priorities are not the same anymore. They're different. Your priorities are God's priorities. Your priorities become for the peace and the renewal and the shalom of God being brought in through the spirit of God, through his church, through the activity of the church, through worshiping and praising Christ. This now sets new priorities, priorities that society does not deem socially acceptable, contemptible, and even foreign. They're like, who are you guys? What's going on? Another way to put it is the people in 1 Peter and Christians today, they became strangers in society because they became strange. They became strangers because they became strange. Because all of a sudden your free time is spent differently. Your days off aren't just days off, they're like Sabbath rest for your soul. Like your choices, your pri- everything is different and it, you look strange. People look at you and there's a part, there's a part, not all of it, there's a part. There's a part that the city will look at the Christians and say, you're strange. There's a part of the Christian life that will look at you and go, you guys are amazing. But there's a part that they will say you're strange. Now how did they become strange is the question. And does their strangeness hold true for us some 2,000 years later? Now let's move to the second to answer that question, let's move secondly to the, their location socially. They were called foreigners and exiles. Socially, Peter will call his readers foreigners and exiles. Look at 1 Peter 2.11. It says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. This is what he calls the readers of 1 Peter. I urge you, if you're in Christ, he calls us foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Okay, this is a, we're not getting there. We'll get to chapter two eventually, I promise. But he's saying that because you're foreigners and exiles, you live a different way. And the question is this, and it's on the screen as well. The question is, in what way do followers of Jesus live lives as foreigners and exiles? In what way do we, those of us that follow Christ, in what way do, ways do we live as foreigners and exiles? That's the question. If you are part of this church community, 
If you're a part of Reality San Francisco, you are a part of a community that is calling San Francisco home. That we are, the leadership of this church, the people that are committed to this church, we are endeavoring to call San Francisco home. Though it's really hard to live here, it's expensive as, you know, whatever, we know that. But we're trying to call this place home. And we're trying to play, call this place home, and let me clarify that because I might get an email, on earth, okay? Like, no, heaven's our home. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> on this earth, this is the place we're endeavoring to call home. In my opinion, there is no greater place to call home than San Francisco. This is that we desire to call this place home until the, the Lord establishes the new heavens and the new earth. And during that time, I'm still going to ask Jesus if I can live here. Like, can I, can I live in San Francisco still, Lord? Like, I like it there. There's everything I like that's a part of that city. Can I, it's going to be redeemed. It's going to be amazing. Can I live there? But we want to live here now. We want to make friends here in San Francisco. We want to love here and serve here and work here and make a life in San Francisco. But when we do, and when we do it faithful to Christ, we will do, we will be, no matter what, it's inevitable, we will be, in a certain way, foreigners and exiles. It's inevitable. There will be a sense that we are strangers in this land because we're strange, the working title of this sermon was, or, was Christians are weird, but I didn't think that would go over really well, so I changed it. We will be strangers in this land. I know this is like, this is, this is going to take a while to sit with us because there's, there's things that we think we, we think this means. There's things that we are like, no, we won't. We're, we're supposed to like fit in everywhere. It's going to take us a while to get here. But it's inevitable if we truly live under the lordship of Jesus Christ and call San Francisco home, we will be foreigners. We will be strangers because we will be strange. And that's because we live under a totally different set of priorities. We serve a different master. Not the master of self or consumerism or money or pleasure or comfort, but master Jesus who came to give his life. He did not come to, to be served but to serve and lay his life down as a ransom for many. And one of the priorities is to abstain from sin that kills the soul. That's one of the priorities of the Christian life. To abstain from sin that, corrupt, that, that kills the soul, but not just that, as important is to testify, to live into the one who can save our souls and give us new life. So I don't, I don't care what you do or who you are in Christ, that will make you strange. That your new priorities in Christ will make you strange. But how can we live in San Francisco? I mean, have you ever got that question from anyone? Like you just moved here, you moved here from probably a very conservative part, which is almost anywhere outside the Bay Area, a conservative part of the country, and you get a phone call from your mom or your friends or your old pastor, how can you live in San Francisco? And they'll always ask you that. Not like how can you live, like financially, but how can you live there in San Francisco as a Christian? And they will say that. How can you live there? It's dark. It's so progressive. It's liberal or whatever. But we ask that question to ourselves. How do we live here? What does cultural engagement look like for followers of Jesus in San Francisco? Well, how do we engage with our culture? How do we engage with it as we live here, as we work here, as we surf here? How do we view cultural engagement in a society that's non-Christian? where at times seems hostile to the faith. How do we engage our culture? There's three 
historic ways or through typical ways. I probably, historic in the sense that it's, it's probably true today. It's been true for a long time. But there's three ways that we typically try to engage our culture. The first one is we, we promulgate our culture. We try, or another, maybe a, a derogatory way of saying this is we try to proselytize our culture. This is by force trying to spread the Christian faith. We kind of see the Christian faith as, faith as a militant faith. That we get into our city and we're like, we're going to preach the gospel, we're going to scream, we're going to yell at people, we're going to picket, we're going to use signs. We want San Francisco to become heaven on earth. And so every, we will fight out loud, very loud, every law that contradicts our doctrine. And there's people that come to San Francisco that do this all the time. There's people that come to San Francisco that do not live here that try to do this all the time. They try to proselytize or promulgate. The, the, that's how they culturally engage. They, they, they're doing it loud. They're, they're heavy engagement. They pick it. It's, it's the kingdom is going to win and we're going to fight you type of thing. The second way, and I don't think that there's that many people in this audience that does the first one. I imagine there's probably some. There's, there, I know there's a lot that live in the city and there's a lot that come into the city that try to do that. But the second one is accommodate. And this is probably... Our besetting sin, to be honest, uh, us, our church, uh, the, 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 the culture in San Francisco, we accommodate. This is most popular for younger Christians. There's actually a whole movement. There's a, even a book called, written on hipster Christianity, on how to like just to be cool and hipster as a Christian. It's so weird. This is, this is more of a, like a private faith. This is when it's our... It's, it's my spirituality. It's for personal peace. There's no, there's no real engagement unless it's just serving the poor and that's it. There's no really other engagement. We look no different in life and practice than our society. We look the same. We try to do everything the same. We have the same values and the same priorities. We just go to church on Sunday and we meditate sometimes. And this is called accommodation. You get into a city and you, and, and, and you, you just take up its practices and you take up everything about it without ever thinking through it the theological implications, without ever praying through the spiritual ramifications of doing it. You just accommodate because it's easiest. I'd say probably more times than not, my present party included, this is probably the besetting sin that's most easy to get into in San Francisco, accommodation. The third way is to separate. And this is probably the, the, the second way that, that San, Francisco, San Franciscans try to do it. The third way is to separate. This is the world against the church. We have to draw lines in the sand that shall not be crossed. There's no engagement with culture. We run, we hide, we move if we have to because San Francisco is way too sinful for us. We have a holy, holy huddle. We just like, we hang around our own and our Christian friends like, no, no, we can't let anyone else in who's not a Christian. And you have to believe what we do and do our same thing. And, like, and we just kind of get in this holy huddle. We, want, we don't want any engagement with the outside world. And then we do that in San Francisco. We move here from like the Midwest and, 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 or the Bible Bet and we try to find people that are from the Bible Bet and we just hang out with each other. And we let no one else into our circle. And then we're like, two years, guys, let's hang on for two years. Just do this thing for two years. Then you, you go back to where you're from. And that happens a lot as well in this city. It's like, I, I can't let this city change me. I can't let this. And there is no level of engagement at all culturally. Now, where do we land? Where should we land? And what you'll see in Peter, as Peter does this, he will actually weave in and out of all three. He will weave in and out of all three in a beautiful dance. This is the hardest thing to do. They're all right and they're all wrong, all three of them. But if you move in and out of them, 
with nuance and grace and sophistication and thinking and being in, in tune with the Spirit of God, it works. And it works brilliantly. And Peter will attempt to teach his people who are scattered all over in non-Christian societies, how do you weave in and out of society? How do you accommodate and go, okay, our society believes this, okay, that's okay. But then how do you go, I'm abstaining from that, but I'll, I'll bring this in. We have to kind of, actually we have to fight that. That's injustice and that's wrong. How do you weave in and out of this? And this is what Peter will try to do. Again, Scott McKnight says this. The issue facing the Christians in Asia Minor was disturbingly simple. How should we live in this context of social exclusion and persecution? Should we escape into a more sheltered world? Should we withdraw from society? Should we turn a cold shoulder to our world? Should we denounce society in a poetic and prophetic tones? How then should we live? Peter's letter is a window into a situation that even throws light onto, on our world. His letter is one of the first struggles in the church with society. It forms some of the conversation that continues to this day, and in our examination of it, we will reap great reward. This is why I can't wait to dive into this book. I cannot wait to meditate on this book with you, this letter with you, because in this, guys, we will find a way to navigate in a beautiful way, and sometimes in a hard way, maybe even in a way that we might be even persecuted, to navigate how do we live, how do we engage, how do we love and serve our God and our city? How do we do that? How do we engage our world, our city? Now, that question, though this is all very evocative, that question will take months of us going through this letter to maybe figure out and probably a lifetime to live out. But I wanna, I, I wanna start with this. This is where we'll try to land this plane. I wanna start with this. We must know who we are before God. Before we start bobbing in and out of culture, before we start engaging it, before we learn how, what accommodation means and how do we not accommodate and what ways do we separate and what ways do we, do we have to come against it and go, this is injustice, this is wrong, we're gonna join with our city and fighting again. How do we weave in and out of that? We must know who we are. This is where everything must start. We have to find our location theologically and it starts here. And this is how Peter starts his letter. Exiles who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Leave that on the screen. Can we just for a second, would you with me, just trip out on the beautiful Trinitarian shape of who we are? Like, that might even be a thing you start saying. I'm, I'm, Trinitarian, I'm Trinitarianly shaped. Is that even a word? I don't even think so. But has Trinitarian shape. Look at this. It's you're chosen by God the Father. Peter goes, you are chosen by God the Father. You are sanctified. That means set apart. You're different because of the work of the Spirit, but the sanctification also has a transformation of character kind of quality to it. So not only are you set apart for God, but you're inwardly transformed into his likeness by the Spirit of God. But not just that, you're transformed to be obedient to Jesus, our Lord, because we've been sprinkled with his blood that is saved by him because of his work on the cross for us. Wow. Peter just starts saying, this is who you are. You've got to know who you are, that you're chosen by God. The spirit of the living God lives in you, and he sanctified you. He set you apart, and you're sprinkled with the blood of Christ, and that's how you were saved. And now we're called to be obedient to him. That's who you are. No matter where you live, no matter how much persecution or, or whatever is going on in your life, you've got to know who you are before you can live out this life, this Christian life in a society. You have to know who you are. This letter does not bring us to some generic spirituality. Generic spirituality is very popular 
in our day. Generic spirituality where people are spiritual, everyone is spiritual in San Francisco, everyone is. I have not met a person like, I'm not spiritual. Everyone, no matter what they believe, is like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm spiritual. Like, meaning they try to connect, and this is what they genuinely mean, and, and, I, and I admire it. They genuinely mean they're trying to connect with something or some energy outside of themselves or deep within themselves, and that's admirable. I understand that. That's the searching and the longing of every single human soul, every single human heart. And so we want to be spiritual. But oftentimes, when people are spiritual, they cannot tell you what spirit they are spiritually connecting with. But that's not what we have here in 1 Peter. Peter says, the spirit of the living God brings us into covenant, founded on the blood of Jesus Christ. It is not a generic spirituality. It is a Christian spirituality. It's founded on Christ who gave his life for us. This is not an empty or generic spirituality based on you trying to connect with the divine. And if I could be quite honest, it's actually kind of arrogant to think you connect with the divine. If there is a divine, what makes you think you are good enough or holy enough to reach him or her or it? What makes you think that you can actually even approach this divine being? If God is that holy and other or the spirit or whatever is that holy or other or the divine is that holy or other, what makes you think that you can reach them? You cannot. But God in Christ has pursued us. He has established a relationship with us. And not merely by words, but deeds. He gave his, he shed his blood for us. He gave his life for us. And that's what's that, that's that strange and probably foreign phrase, sprinkled by the blood. You're like, what's that even mean? That's so weird. That's what that phrase means. That we are brought into a blood covenant with God. Not based on merit or performance or social status, but based on what Christ has done for us. And then Peter says that, the, that God the Father has chosen us. He's chosen us. And what Peter tells his readers is that God's divine initiative has operated in our lives even before we were aware of it. That God was moving and working in our lives even before we knew he was. This trips me out more than anything, that God would have chosen me and had been initiating and pursuing a relationship with me even when I was unaware of it. Last week we're at a staff retreat and we're all outside after dinner. We're talking and when we get talking we start sharing about, the you know, you, people get around and start sharing about like crazy old days and like weird times you had and like growing up and Pastor Tark is the funnest guy to go there with because he has crazy stories because he's been in prison and all that stuff. Anyway, so he just trumps everyone. Like you're telling a story, oh, I remember it. And he's like, I remember when I was in prison. You're like, dang it. <laughs> I can't beat that. So we're just tell, telling stories and I'm, and I'm sharing the story of like being in high school and like, just doing all kind of stupid stuff. And then through the stupid stuff, God pursuing me. Like, I can't even share. I don't, I'm not even going to share the story. I can't even, I can't even do it because I, I just feel stupid. Anyway, but that God would do it when you're in your worst mistakes, your lowest moment. There's some hint of grace in that moment. And God's like, I'm pursuing you. And you're like, oh, really? Oh, get away. And then I'm pursuing you. I'm pursuing you. And then finally he gets your attention. And that might be where you're at even right now. Like running from God, running from God and going to church. I don't know why you would be here, but I, I, I would imagine someone here is like that. Running from God, like, and all the while you had no idea, but God is pursuing you. 
that God is initiating a relationship with you, choosing you before you ever were even aware of it. I mean, think about that for a second. Breathe that in. You might not even be aware of it right now, not explicitly anyway, but God, the great initiator, is at work in your life. The purposeful plan of God is bigger than our individual life, but, his, but God's big plan pulls, us, pulls our little individual lives into his divine giant plan. That's what Peter's saying. That before you're even aware of it, God was at work. Before you were even aware of it, God was choosing you. Now, the reason why all of this is so important, who we are in God, is that Peter is relocating us and dislocating us at the same time. He's relocating us and dislocating us at the same time. He's relocating us into the family of God with new priorities, new allegiances, new hopes. But at the same time, he will dislocate us from this present world. See what he's trying to do there? You're exiled, you're scattered, you're foreigners, but you're at home with God. Your family's with God. He will go into verse 3 and says, you've been born again. You've been born in this new family. He's dislocating us from the present world with its present priorities and then relocating us in God. He will relocate us with living in this world still, but now in a whole new way. He actually even, Peter will just get overwhelmed and start talking about this over and over again. In chapter 2, he says, he says this, but you are a chosen people. There it is again, chosen a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who, look at, called you out of darkness, dislocation, and into his wonderful light, relocation. He's pulled you out, and he's placed you in his family. This is what Peter's doing. He's like, before you can even engage with society, before you can even learn how to live this Christian life, you have to realize that you've been dislocated from the present darkness, meaning the realm of death, disintegration, and sin, and then you've been relocated into his wonderful light, life, and love, and truth, and shalom. This is what Peter's doing. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are dislocated from this old life, you're relocated into this new life, and all of this, all of this, is Peter's attempt to make sense to his readers of their present social location. They were thinking, the first readers were probably thinking something like this, and maybe you have too. Maybe you're a young Christian, you've only been following Christ for a little while, and you're probably thinking something like this. Why is Christianity and the way of Jesus is kind of weird? Why is it so hard to live here? Why does it seem that my convictions of following Christ seem to jeopardize elements and dimensions of my life on earth? Why is, it, why is there even social sort of marginalization? Why is there persecution? Why is, there, why is work so different and social, and social situation different and education and physical and romantic? How, why is everything so weird? And Peter will say, because you have a new found social location in the family of God. And it's inevitable. It will be weird. If I was to be completely honest with you, it's it's rare for Christians to live obediently, even in, Western, in the Western world, without experiencing some kind of social exclusion at some point in our lives or at some level of existence, even if it doesn't come out to far-out persecution. I, I, I read books, and I like to write in my books, and sometimes I read something, and I don't even know what to say. I just write, dang, or like, whoa. So this was one of the dang moments, okay? I'm like, dang, that's good. So I'm just going to read it to you, and it speaks to this. This is what this writer said. He said, the basic reality is that as a whole, we resist the possibility that this letter 
is addressed to us. A lot of people go, oh, they were there. it's the persecuted church, it has nothing to do with us. That's what us Westerners would love to think, he says. The basic reality is, as a whole, we resist the possibility that this letter is addressed to us, that we might be cast as nobodies in the world. The problem is theological. What separates us from 1 Peter is not the strange world of the Bible as much as its unhandy, inconvenient claims on our lives. It's like we just don't want to live into who we are. Like, are you saying that if I live into who I am, there will be something that will be marginalized socially, that I won't be as cool or as, as liked? And there is a point where that is true sometimes. There's something weird about the Christian life, period. It's otherworldly, but it's also thisworldly. That's what makes it so weird. It's otherworldly in the sense that Peter will talk about how everything is kept in heaven for us, that God is keeping heaven for you and you for heaven. But he says, I want you to live in this world. When Jesus prayed in John 17, the prayer, he says, I'm not of this world. They're not of this world. But my prayer is that you not take them out of this world. I want them in this world. I want them bringing about shalom in this world. Don't take them out. We have a faith that is otherworldly, but is thisworldly at the same time. And this is what makes it so weird. If it was one or the other, it would be fine. If this was all about the other world and we didn't care at all about this world, which has been the history of the church for the last several, was last several maybe 100 years, like not caring at all about this, has ruined this planet, and it's all about heaven, and who cares about this earth? And there's a whole movement that goes, no, 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 we have to care about this earth. We have to be Christian environmentalists. We have to care. God's given us stewardship over this earth. We have to care for it. And if we only had to care for this earth and not about heaven, then it's all about this earth. That would be easy too, but it's both. And that's what makes this thing so weird. That's what will make this city love our hospitality as Christians if we're doing it right. But they'll hate our, our sexual ethic. They will love our generosity. And they will hate our exclusivity. That Christ is the only true Lord and Savior. They will hate that. But they will love the way that we are generous. At the same time, we are living for this, for this world but not of this world. We're living for heaven but for earth at the same time. And it, there's this tension. And it's always been this way. Always been this way. Allow me to read you, and I've read a part of this before, but I think it's fitting now. Allow me to read you a second century account of Christianity. And this second century account of Christianity, you know that the writer and the people that were in his community were following, I mean, had this, this letter to, of 1 Peter. And they were living it out. And followers of Jesus have been doing this ever since. And it captures the weirdness of Christianity. Second century account of Christianity. It says, For Christians are no different from other people in terms of their country, language, or customs. Nowhere do they inhabit cities of their own. It's like there's not like a Christian city that only Christians are allowed in that use some strange dialect like they speak Klingon or something like that. Or live out of the ordinary. They're normal people. They live among us. They live in their respective countries, but only as exiles. They participate in all things as citizens. They endure all things as foreigners. They share their meals, but not their sexual partners. They are found in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but participate in the life of heaven. They are obedient to the laws that, are, that have been made, and by their own lives they supersede the laws. They love everyone and are persecuted by all. They are not understood 
and they are condemned. They are put to death and made alive. They are impoverished and make many rich. They lack all things and abound in everything. They are dishonored and they are exalted in their dishonors. May it be for us, church. May this be true of us. May we live with such attention on in San Francisco that the, the same thing that was said here in this epistle could be said of us, that we did this, that we live this way. May we know who we are before God so we can be faithful to be who we are in San Francisco.